As you're being seated, go ahead and open your Bibles. We're going to be in James chapter 2 today. I'm continuing the passage that we looked at last week in James 2. Today we'll be in verses 20 through 27. So we have been talking about the relationship between these four words that in a lot of ways frame our Christian faith, and certainly they are talked about over and over again in the book of James. And we begin with the idea that we have a God who is a God of truth. And so God did not just create us and say, uh, good luck with that, but God has instilled truth within his creation, and he, he shows us this is right, this is wrong, this is what holiness is. But there's also a problem, and that is that God is completely holy, there is no sin in him, and none of us can live up to the holy standard of God. If you read the Bible, you'll discover that sometimes it talks about the law, and the law is anchored in the truth of God. So none of us can be good enough to fulfill all the truth of God, and so we are in desperate need of grace. So we find in the New Testament the story of grace. God so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only son, depends upon what translation you read, how you, how you, what you grew up with. Anyway, he gave his only son so that whoever what? Should not but have. And you see right there the story of grace, the story of the gospel. God intervened into our scene so that we might be redeemed. Jesus Christ lived a life that you and I could never live. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He didn't die merely as a good teacher, but he died as an, making an atonement for your sins and mine, absorbing the wrath of God intended for sin upon himself, taking that wrath into the grave. But because he's holy, because he is the Son of God himself, death could not contain him. He rose again, and he calls us to believe in him. So our salvation is not found through our good behavior. Our salvation is found and experienced in grace. It's something that you and I don't deserve. What is the call of God onto our life? How does he call us to respond to his grace? In faith. And when we respond to his grace in faith, guess what else happens? Our works begin to awaken as well. And so there's something that happens when we come to Christ and we experience his grace. These works over here, where we could never be good enough, we could never measure up, we could never do enough, suddenly they come alive, because now you're in Christ and you're living in grace. And not only do the works come alive, but your faith comes alive, because now you are trusting in the one who brings you grace and brings you meaning to your life. So, in Christianity today, I see a lot of busyness. A lot of people are trying really hard to please God, and they're also trying really hard to please others. And we work, 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 work to try to do the right things and not to do the wrong things. I saw a report this, this uh, week. I haven't gotten a chance to completely verify it yet, but it was looking at the 10 workingest cities in America, and seven of them were in Dallas-Fort Worth. So we are a working people. That is part of our culture. And then you throw this into the internet age where there are so many things you're supposed to do. Parents, how much pressure is there on you in the internet age to do everything and to do everything right? You ever feel it? Am I the only one? Right. Buying a car seat is now a 10-hour research project, okay? You have to figure it out, and if you get it wrong, your little child, is, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Everything with awareness 
has become pressured, and we do all this stuff, and and I just want to blow the whistle and say, okay, let's just stop for a second, because before you do one more thing, uh, let me ask you one incredibly important question. Why? Why do you do it? Why do you do what you do? You see, a lot of what we do is just because it's what, what I've always done. There was a newlywed couple, they got married, and they were going to make a ham. And so the, the young groom, he gets the ham out of the refrigerator, and he starts to prepare it, and uh, he, he cuts off the two ends, and his bride looks at him and says, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm cutting off the ends of the ham. She goes, why? Oh, well, that's just what, what my mom always did. And so his wife looks at him and says, well, why did your mom always cut the ends off? And I don't know, so they call her. And she says, well, that's what my mom always did. So they get Meemaw on the phone. They're like, Meemaw, why is it that you always cut the ends off the ham? What's the purpose of that? And she says, well, when I was a newlywed, I didn't have a pan that was big enough to fit a ham in, and so I just cut the ends off so that it would fit in the pan. And sometimes that's what we do in life. My mom did this, my grandparents did this, and so this is what, what, what I do. Now, most of us want to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves. We have this internal desire to be a part of something that is impactful, something that is eternal. I call this your, your mission. Do you have a life mission? Do you know why it is that you're here? A few years back, I, I wrote down my life mission is to know God and to live for Him with people that I love. I want to have a relationship with God, and I want to live out that relationship in family and through other loving relationships. Our church has a mission. We desire to lead people to worship, grow in, and serve God through lives that are being changed by the power of the gospel. So at the heart, at the engine of our church, is the idea that people matter to God. And because they matter to God, they ought to matter to us. And we want to come alongside people and help them move from where they are to experience the grace of God. And we believe that life transformation doesn't take place through behaving better or just trying harder. But life transformation takes place when the gospel really takes root in your heart. And then God begins to do a work that only He can do that transforms you through the, from the inside out and you join God in His work and whenever that happens, you begin worshiping God so that you are aligning the totality of your life with the glory of God and with His honor and will in your life. You're growing in the Word of God. You're growing in relationships with other people and you're beginning to discover this is how God wired me to be and He has created me on purpose for a purpose and you start serving God God everywhere you are so that you can use your life in a meaningful way and you also live a life that has joy in it because Christianity is not supposed to be toxic. Christianity is not supposed to kick people away from the cross. It's supposed to have a a refreshing quality that draws people to the cross. Amen? Christian people ought to have joy. And when we're truly growing and becoming disciples, that begins flowing in our life. Now, it's easy to lose sight of the big picture and to lose sight of the mission, both for your life, for our church, for your workplace, whatever it might be, because there's just so much to do. So in the midst of dirty dishes, homework assignments, overgrown bushes, 
practice after practice, and I haven't even gotten to your work, in the midst of all the stuff that there is to do, we forget, why is it? Why? Why is it that I do what I do? But when you have a mission and a vision, you have a focus and an energy. When you lose your mission and vision, you find yourself having confusion and exhaustion. When we lose our mission and vision as a church, we forget why we do what we do, and the energy begins to just slowly drain. And once you start experiencing that energy drain, have you ever reached this point in your life? You don't have to say it, but have you ever reached a point in your life where nothing motivates you anymore? You're just almost apathetic and everything becomes a hassle. I see this happen in people's Christian lives. They used to have a walk with the Lord, but then they just get de-churched. Or sometimes we just get really, really numb. It begins affecting every area of our life. Last Sunday, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. The Bible says there that you are saved by grace through faith. And catch this, it's not from yourselves. So your salvation is not something that you can work. In fact, it says in the next passage, so that nobody can boast. The only thing you can boast in as a Christian is the cross. And we are saved by faith uh, through grace. The Bible is very clear about that. Paul in the book of Romans chapter 3 talks about how we are justified by faith and that it is a part from the works of the law. In Romans chapter 5, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come to James chapter 2, and he begins to show us how whenever we have experienced the grace of God, it awakens two things. So now our works, which were incapable, our works which were dead because they had no real meaning, and our faith... They come alive and we're able to uh, pursue the truth of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So look with me in your Bibles, James chapter 2 and verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good, even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Now what is James saying here? Is he saying that we are saved by faith and good works? Is he saying that you behave your way to heaven? If that's the case, then a lot of us are in big, big trouble, right? And, and my job just got a little bit easier because I can now measure everything by your works. So if that, that's the case, then if you miss three Sundays, then when you get to heaven, instead of having a mansion... We'll give you one of those little 200-foot little houses that you see on HDTV. Yeah. I know it looks cool on the TV show, but it's a bummer for eternity. Trust me. You don't, you don't want that. Well, don't trust me. I don't know it for sure. But anyway, you, you don't want that. So let me, let me help you back away from a potential theological cliff here. The New Testament uses the word justified in a judicial, theological way. So... A few years ago, one of the great honors of my life, I got to baptize my daughter, McKenna. And before I baptized McKenna, God did a work in her heart. So baptism is a public profession of what's already occurred in the heart. 
And she had recognized her need for salvation, and she had come to faith in Christ. So spiritually, she was baptized into Christ, Romans 6 talks about. And her water baptism was actually a symbolic picture of what had already happened spiritually in her heart when she placed her faith in Christ. So Paul talks about, the Apostle Paul talks about in the book of Romans, this word justified. And you'll see it also in our passage today. To be justified is to be pronounced not guilty. So I am pronounced not guilty of my sins even though I'm a sinner. How is that possible? Because my sins have been atoned for on the cross. You following me? I know, I know I'm talking fast and I'm throwing out a lot at you, but stick with me, okay? So we sometimes refer to being justified as being saved. So let me ask you this question. Has there ever been a time in your life where you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? I'm not asking about did you grow up in a Christian home, but have you ever personally placed your faith in Jesus Christ? We call that that moment of salvation. Well, James here is talking about a living faith. So he's saying when our faith is authentic, and it is truly placed in Jesus Christ, not only does our faith come alive, but guess what else comes alive? Your works. And James says your life begins to testify to the reality of your faith. Now, do not make this harder than it is, especially if you are a theologian type. Don't, don't make this overly complicated, all right? When you have a genuine love in life, when you have a genuine commitment, when you have a genuine faith, there's works that display that. That's true in just in every area of life. If you genuinely love your spouse, is there not going to be some evidence of that? Are you all with me? Okay. If you genuinely love your kids, is there not going to be some evidence to that? If you're truly committed to something, is there not going to be evidence of that? You see, whenever we have genuine faith, it, it cannot be simply contained. It, it pops out. It, it's revealed in our life. It's like that ball in the swimming pool. You try to hold it under the water, and it's going to pop out because it has to come out. It's genuine. So back at Mother's Day, our family adopted a chocolate Labrador retriever named Tater. Okay, Have you, anybody ever met Tater yet? So, yeah, look at that. Yeah, she's becoming the church mascot in a in a slow sort of way and she is she's just sweet as can be and and we we love her and uh uh you know it's kind of her world and we just live in it i call it taterville and uh but at home tater tater's greatest loyalty is to her nose and so yesterday my daughters had left a couple of reese's peanut butter cups in their bedroom and Tater wandered into their bedroom. Now, those Reese's peanut butter cups happened to be in one of their Bible covers. And so Tater destroyed the Bible cover, the front cover, and ate a few pages of the Word of God. <laughs> now, you've, you've heard the verse that says that we need to hide the Word of God in our heart so that we might not sin against Him. Tater hid the Word of God in her stomach so that she might not sin. So when we discovered this, we, we weren't happy. Uh, you say, well, what did you do? Well, she's not up for adoption today, okay? <laughs> she's still my dog. Why? Because she's part of the family, and we love her. 
and she is secure in our love. So don't make this harder than it is. When you have genuine, authentic faith, it's going to carry you through. It's going to come out. Love carries you through difficulty. It motivates you to do things that you would not ordinarily do. And one of the primary ways that we express our love to God is through faith. In grace, God says to us, I love you. Through faith, we say to God, I love you too. Faith motivates us. It empowers us to do things that we ordinarily would not do. And authentic faith is demonstrated on the pages of, in the pages of life. Look at, look at the passage in verse 21. Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works? in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see that faith was active together with works, and by works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and then sending them out by a different route? So we have two examples. Abraham, and we see in Romans 4 and we see in Genesis that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But that belief was also demonstrated in faith. So he was willing to obey God even if it meant the loss of his son, and his works demonstrated the genuineness of his belief. Rahab is an incredible story of grace. She had been a prostitute, but then she experienced God, and she placed her faith in God, and that belief changed her life, and the evidence of her belief was seen in her actions. So let me put a Texas Southern conclusion on this that you need to make sure that you catch. Being saved, being a Christian, is more than a magical walk or a dunk. Being saved is about being born again. And when you are born again in Christ, all things become new, and it changes you. It changes the way you live, and it will lead to a life where your work comes alive. But now, let me make sure that the brakes screech here a little bit and that you remember this. You're not saved because of your works. You are saved because of grace. And you do what you do for God because you are not in order to be. That's a little lashism. I do what I do because I am not in order to be. So you do what you do for God because you are a believer, not in some way trying to earn His love. There's a basic difference between a grace-filled life and a law-driven life. You see, the law tries to redeem people through rules and motivates with fear. Grace redeems people through faith and motivates with love. And here's the amazing thing about God's grace. It redeems you in faith and then changes you in love. Grace does not divorce truth. It marries truth to love. So back to question. Why do you do what you do for God? Let me give you three wrong reasons. Number one, I hope to be good enough. Number two, so that I can be better than others. Number three, I'm afraid that I'll lose God's love. 
Now let me answer these. Number one, you will never be good enough. You cannot work your way to God. You don't earn His love. You'll never be good enough. You are in need of grace. Number two, you're not better than others. We are all sinners who stand on level ground in front of the cross in need of grace. Number three, God's love for you. Catch this now. God's love for you is not based on your loveliness. It's anchored in grace. And because you didn't earn His love, His love is extended to you in Jesus Christ. His love is eternal, as eternal as His Son. It's grace, not fear, that brings both faith and works to life. But a lot of people in their Christian life, and I've seen this, I, I grew up in church, I'm a pastor's kid, wrote my name for the first time in macaroni in the Awana Club, probably. Okay, I've seen this. For a lot of us, our motivator becomes fear. And if your motivator in your Christian life becomes fear, it's going to lead you to a paranoid dissatisfaction. You will be paranoid because you're always afraid that someone's going to find you out. You're always going to be afraid that I won't measure up. I won't do enough. I won't be good enough. And you'll be dissatisfied because you'll never truly believe that God loves you. Paranoid, dissatisfied Christianity is tragically lacking. You have a basic God-birthed desire for your life's work to have meaning. And part of the fracture of sin that slithered into the world in Genesis is that life and work lost its satisfaction. You go back to the Garden of Eden and we talk about the curse that occurred when Adam and Eve fell. And you'll see that one of, the, one of the key points of that that we often miss is that the things that we turn to for satisfaction lost their satisfaction. So we turn to children and family thinking that uh, in children and family we'll have complete satisfaction. But then Genesis says, ladies, it's going to hurt when you have those kids. Anybody ever delivered a baby? Did it hurt? Yeah, we won't talk about it too much because we have some people that are about to have children. But anyway, it, it hurt. But then there's another chapter that we don't realize sometimes, and that is that raising them is life's greatest joy, but it will also bring you your greatest hurts. You'll go through ups and downs, and family will always have a certain amount of messiness because we live in a fallen world. We look to marriage thinking, I'll find, if I can just find Mr. Right, if I can just find that person who completes me, then everything will be okay. That's Disney. That's Jerry Maguire. That's not real life. In real life, marriage is awesome. I love marriage. I, I recommend it. But it's ups and downs. There's times where it's easy, times where it's hard. We look to our work and we think, okay, work will bring me the satisfaction that I need. I just need to be successful in my career. And you toil and you sweat and there's constant pressure for what? For two checks a month and a watch at the end of 25 years? Everyone, if you really think about it, is an interim at some point. And so under, underlying it all is this, this little nagging, this little nagging fear. Fear that I'll be hurt. Fear that I'll fail. Fear that those I love don't love me back. Fear that I'll lose what I have. Fear that my faults will be exposed. And into this fear and struggle, God drops the cross. And he says, 
You don't need to live in fear. Because of my love, you can live in freedom. You are mine, and my love for you is unconditional. And so paranoia is replaced by grace, and dissatisfaction is replaced by meaning. And when that begins to occur, when you begin to realize just the depth of the cross, and you become alive in grace, then you become alive in faith, you become alive in works, and guess what? The truth of God becomes alive in you. Amen? I've seen this happen in people's lives where the, the light comes on. And it's like suddenly, suddenly they begin to realize, I, I don't have to spend all my time chasing my fears. I, I can start living my life. God didn't call you to live in bondage. He called you to live in freedom, and that freedom is anchored in His grace. Whenever you truly adorn yourself in that and start wearing it, then suddenly your beliefs and your works and your mission they come together, and instead of being exhausted and drained, unfocused, you begin to realize this is who I am. This is what he's called me to do. And yeah, you may still get sleepy, and it's going to get rough sometimes, but there's a joy, and there's a calm, and there's a direction, because you're walking in grace. And you know who you are. Whenever you know who you are in Christ, nobody can steal that from you. You have a purpose. And so you focus on your purpose and your calling and you take those circumstances and you give them to a sovereign God and He works them together. Romans 8.28 says, For your good. And James ends it saying, Just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Just as Jesus' body was resurrected, when your faith is in Jesus, guess what else is resurrected? Your faith and your works. The grace of God restores your spirit and brings both your faith and your works alive. I've said a lot. Let's bow our head. Musicians are going to come. Uh, I recognize that some of you may have walked in here today and you're struggling with your life's work. What does it all mean? Why do I do what I do? There may not be any easy answers. There may be some things that you have to pray through and process through. But I do want you to know that God didn't create you to simply live in exhaustion and to simply float through life with a randomness, but God created you on purpose for a purpose. So one of the things that I want to help you with and pray for you through is that you might come alive in His mission and vision for you. And I pray that our church will come alive and experience a unity in the mission and vision to which He's called us. So I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I'm not going to call anybody out, but our heads are bowed. I, I would like to, as your pastor, pray for you if you come in here today and you just say, Lash, I, I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm struggling right now. Can you just pray for me? Would you just lift your hand right where you are? Just lift your hand and say, Lash, I, I'm struggling right now. Just pray for me. It's tough right now. God, I pray for your spirit to be alive in our hearts and for us to be alive in grace. May we have an authentic faith and may that faith also awaken every part of our life so that our career, our family, our school, our neighborhood, whatever it might be, 
that we can live with intentionality, not for our glory, but for your glory. Help us, Lord, not to live in bondage, but to live in freedom, knowing that that we have a love and we have a God that walks with us, not just for a season, but for all eternity. And nothing can separate us from that love because it has been extended to us through grace. And that grace has been sealed and justified by the eternal power of Jesus Christ. And it's in Him that we worship and in Him that we place our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.